0: Becoming an Anti-Racist, the podcast. Hi everyone, I'm your host, Dr Mina Abdi, and in this episode, I am joined by Pran Patel, who is a former school leader with 17 years experience in education and is the founder of DecolonizeTheCurriculum.com. Pran has a book coming out in the next few months around becoming the anti-racist educator and is a prolific Twitter, just as i am so i'm really looking forward to having these conversations around what it means to decolonize the curriculum
1: my name is pram patel a man of color i describe as being brown and british i've been in education for 17 years i've been an, ed- uh, an anti-racist i'd say since i was 18 currently writing a book called the Anti-Racist Educator. And I am the proud founder of a movement and a website called decolonisercurriculum.com.
0: Brilliant. And so in this episode, we're really talking about what is decolonizing the curriculum and how does, does that fit into the work around anti-racism in schools that we're trying to do. So just to start us off with, we always talk about this term decolonizing and it feels as though the term has being co-opted in a lot of spaces. What does it actually mean to decolonize the curriculum?
1: I'd say it has been co-opted. I think decolonize has been, it's, it's been co-opted maliciously and surreptitiously into diversity. And diversity is important and self-representation. However, that is not decolonization. Decolonization, for me at least, is about moving the way our brains function from the way they've been trained to by society. By that, mm. I mean the structures around us, have taught us through a technology of whiteness, and that's a quote from um, Alana Lentil, a technology that we should act in a way. The structures of success looks like this. Mm. Academia, knowledge looks like this. We accept things from this source when they come in this uh, fashion. Um, Yeah, it's invisible. Yes, it's surreptitious and Machiavellian, but the damage is absolutely plain to see, and we see that in wages. Uh, wages, we see that in property. We see that in in status and power. Um, we can see that in in mental illness. I, mm. I could go on forever.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So when we're talking about the curriculum, we're not just talking about the text. We're talking about how that text came to be.
1: One hundred percent. You can't separate. You can't separate any of anything, any knowledge from where the knowledge came from. And that this, I mean, talking about Karen uh, Barard, who talks about you can't separate machine from result. Mm. And we're all products of a machine, which, which is set on a setting of, of, of white supremacy. And so everything which is a product of that machine, which is society, will uh, propagate the same narrative.
0: So you said a word that some people would find triggering, particularly when we're talking about decolonizing the curriculum, and that is the term white supremacy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Why is it important to name that when we're doing this work? What is white supremacy?
1: Again, for me, um, I think white supremacy is anything which denigrates disproportionately the lives of people of colour. I, I use the word white supremacy over uh, racism because there's a fallacy which exists that racism is to do with the colour of a person's skin or the melanin in our epithelials it's absolutely not it's to do with power so so there is a fallacy and a, a misconception that that a person of color can be racist to white people it just doesn't work like that because racism is systemic it's pervasive uh, and as people of color cannot systemically be racist and i'm doing speech marks i realize this mm-hmm. is a podcast um to white people racism is a one way street so and it and power flows from white people to uh, down towards people of color i mean the example i normally say is as a former assistant head in a secondary school if i was to say i hate white people i don't but if i was to say i hate white people and that's it, i'm not hiring any more white people ever again then a white person applying at my organization would be discriminated against They would be disadvantaged however what happens tomorrow they apply for another role somewhere else which Mm. in which they don't get the disadvantage they get an advantage so there is a systemic issue there where if you're a person of colour you're much more likely to are a disadvantage. Uh, if you have a Muslim sounding name, you have to apply for 80% more jobs in the UK. I could just go on and on and on and on. So yeah, so I use white supremacy quite openly. Equally, uh, Dr Kendi, Ibram Kendi says that racism has to be brought into the light. You have to name it constantly, yeah. call it out constantly, because if we don't know it exists, we're never going to be able to change the ways that we're all indoctrinated in. Absolutely. I think it's really important to be humble about this. Um, recently, I think on social media, a person called Di called me out on using indigenous. I used the word indigenous, but I didn't capitalize the I. Mm. Um, and genuinely, it was, it was a typo, I didn't even think about it, but why didn't I think about it? Mm. Why don't the indigenous peoples or the First Nations that I was talking about deserve their right to be a proper noun or a noun? What, what happened in that system? And it's about embracing that fact that we make mistakes and we're all product mm. of white supremacy. But if, if that person had it have had been brave enough to call me out, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even begin to even know to, I need to dismantle that structure, that construct in my head.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and just thinking about racism and, and white supremacy working hand in hand, because ultimately what racism is, is that structure that upholds hierarchy in power, exactly mm. as he said. And the top of that hierarchy is whiteness. And so constantly, when we're doing this work around decolonization, when we're doing this work around anti-racism, what we're trying to do is disrupt and dismantle that hierarchy that has been placed on there, that that notion of truth, um, what it, the way that things should be, the way that things have been presented to be. And it's a real cognitive challenge for everybody because whiteness is not situated within white bodies. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we have when we're doing anti-racism work and decolonial work is, we tend to see it as this is a white person's problem because it's situated within the white body, but we've all been socialized within the system.
1: Absolutely. And I think there's a legacy across the board. And it is survival when we think it through. Because we're socialized to survive as as my parents and them before them who came over. I remember there uh, my grandfather saying to me, We're guests in this country. Mm. And that that mentality was through survival, because his generation were likely to be beaten on the streets. The same with my father's generation, if I'm completely honest. So survival is learning English to a state, picking up an accent, not saying the truth, wearing clothes which are more likely or fit in more. Because in those generations, what would have happened is physical violence, in our generation, and, and I'm making a bit of an assertion there, I'm sure you're much younger than me.
0: No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but in our generation, the violence is still is still impactful, but it comes across, it's not as physical as it used to be, but does it still cause this, uh, the same damage? I'd absolutely say it would. And, and an example of that would be, and I always talk about belonging and culture as being interlinked, Mm-hmm. Does your organisation have a culture where a person has to leave part of their being outside of the door to be accepted? Mm-hmm. Because how much of that I have to leave outside the door shows you what your structure is absolutely like. Would I go to um, all of the schools I've worked in, in a traditional kota payama? Um, absolutely not, mm-hmm. because I know what would have happened and not would what, what would have been said, would have been what would have happened because the culture was this is what success looks like
0: yeah
1: this is not what success looks like and as a person of color we all know you don't put you don't put yourself at a disadvantage because we're already at a disadvantage
0: yeah absolutely and i I echo everything that you said around just having to assimilate to a certain degree as a safety mechanism and you're acutely aware from such a young age of the ways in which you're disadvantaged to a certain degree, your parents say to you, this is what you need to do in order to survive in these systems. But you, that becomes something that is internal. You, it becomes ingrained. You take it in and you think, OK, I know I'm automatically going to be disadvantaged in this space by having a different name. But by the way that I look, by the way that I dress, what can I do to sort of counteract some of that in this space so that I can find some way of surviving in there? And you're absolutely right. It's about survival. So when people go into a space and they don't want to challenge systems and structures it's not a case of them internalizing whiteness to a certain degree but it's being compliant with whiteness yeah and that compliance is something that we are all guilty of to a certain degree but the reasoning for it is is purely around safety
1: yeah absolutely and 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 i think we've got to be quite careful about about people of color who i look at and think yeah yeah, what's happened there is Stockholm syndrome, mm-hmm. is you've been arrested by by a system, and the only way to comply is to absolutely simulate. So then you mm-hmm. take on the traits of white supremacy, you take on the, you actually vote for and and are complicit in the system as we denigrate the. The, the, the people, but this is a long-lasting. It's a long-lasting worldwide phenomenon. And if you look at colonialism on its whole, we look at Rwanda, or if you look at India, and mm. you look at the structures which are put into the colonies in Rwanda, a lighter-skinned uh, minority were put into power of a darker-skinned majority, and that led to a mass civil war. Because Mm -hmm. what happens is when you put structures in society or you come in with a narrative of of white supremacy. And white supremacy in in that nature, I'm sure, was built because slavery, colonialism, stealing, rape, theft, pillaging, all of that is horrific to anybody Mm -hmm. until we dehumanize the people. Yeah. And to dehumanise people, you have to make yourself superior, because as soon as you dehumanise them, they're not human beings. But it's... It, it's it, and then once they're not human beings, the hierarchy is set, everything is fair game.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that connection between who is allowed to be human, who is deemed to be human, and, and these the structures of white supremacy working to justify the vulnerability and the exploitation of people, on the basis of them not being white, yeah, if they no, are not white, these these things that are happening to them are justifiable.
1: Absolutely, one hundred percent. It's really interesting within my own field of education. When I started being, becoming more pre- prevalent in my exposition of my anti-racism, I've been found by numerous head teachers from positions of care, people of color as well as white head teachers, mm-hmm. saying. And you need to if you want to be a head teacher you need to calm down with the anti-racism um you might be right but the problem is you're making yourself unemployable and that's exactly it every time when i kept my mouth shut and i was just talking about mental health um nobody even thought about coming coming and having a discussion with me yeah. there were if anything there were people saying um people saying Keep talking about it, keep talking about it. people sooner or later, people are going to see the move from that being a weakness to a position of strength. But as soon as I start challenging the structures that we are all brought up into, it's whoa, whoa 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 mm. don't shake, don't shake it too much, don't step out of your lane too much yeah. um, and but ultimately, I mean for me, and I'm sure it's the same for you, anti racism isn't about success it's it's about duty, it's about what we were born to do um
0: yeah. And Absolutely, and it and it's not without risk because ultimately, what you're doing if you're doing any kind of anti-racism work is disrupting. And if yeah, you are yeah. disrupting in any way, then those who maintain the status quo are not going to like you in that space. They're not going to appreciate you being in that space. And so it comes with it definitely comes with a huge amount of risk. But we do need, particularly with work around the curriculum, we need to find a way of bringing people in to the space. Mm-hmm. Anti-racism is a long-term piece Mm -hmm. of work that we're doing. It's a process that we're working our way through. Part of that process is looking at the curriculum, looking at the way we teach, looking at the way that we learn, looking at the materials that we use, the environment that we're learning in, etc. How do we bring people into that conversation in a meaningful way um, so so that anybody who is an educator can see themselves as doing the work of decolonizing?
1: I think the first thing starts with the epistemological viewpoints of teachers and educators. And by epistemology, I mean the way we accept knowledge, the methods we use to say, oh, yeah, that's true. Um, in a lot of my work, I think, I think we've been socialised to believe that knowledge supersedes everything. And that I, by that, I mean this term of research. I think we've all been indoctrinated, I should say, to accept positivism over any other form of ontology now by positivism i mean there's a right answer there's a wrong answer there's a an objective truth and as a physics grad i can tell you i was absolutely one of these people give me the research show me the research and pick holes in them but it's interesting when i was a physics grad reading as a 21 22 year old i would always look for research and pick holes in things i didn't agree with so when you take a stance like that, what ends up happening is uh, your ideology informs your, the research and the knowledge you intake. When in reality, it should be the other way around. The things you read should inform your ideology, and mm-hmm. and that's the big movement. You move from things being correct and having an objective truth to, to having a post positivistic or subjective lens, where there is no objective truth. There, is, mm-hmm. the truth in its sense exists in, in the minds and the perceptions of the people who experience them. So that's the first thing to move away from the idea of, of the way we accept knowledge. Um, I mean, I've been thinking lots and lots about the epistemic structures and the way we accept knowledge recently about what are the different, the different ways and attributes that we're more likely to accept knowledge. Mm. I mean, for me, I make it a real effort, a real, real effort to, Include women of colour in my reading. Does that mean that in the book I'm writing has no white men in it? Absolutely not. Does it mean that I reject any knowledge by anyone else? No, absolutely it doesn't. Mainly because the canon is mainly made of white men because of the subjection of women and especially of women of colour. What I'm, I'm saying there is you have to open your mind. You have to first be open to let's look at my network. Let's look at my personal network. Let's look at my work network. Let's look at my wider network. Let's look at my academic network. Let's look at my reading list. Mm. And then what what are the trends that come out? And even as a man of colour, whiteness is prevalent within my own. And and an anti-racist, I've been in this space for for two decades. Um, Through that time, it's still prevalent in my networks. It's still prevalent in my reading. But that's okay. I'm working to undo those structures. I mean, I've stood up in a hall in front of in front of people and said, "Yeah, yeah, I uphold white supremacy." Of course, I do. I've been socialized in a in a culture which which shows me that white male talks with a with a, a normal look at that already mm-hmm. a microaggression in there with an anglicized accent, with no immigration status, heteronormative. Go on and on and on. Is are is superior because they're the people in success. So of course of course we all uphold our systems but those systems but the aim here is obviously to bring it down to what we accept and to break that down so that's the first step and the next thing is to to recognize that everything that we do in a school or an education body is colonized from from attendance data behavior mm. assessment literally everything everything you can think of mm. hr across the boards has a lens has a racialized lens within it
0: yeah i completely i I completely agree it's unpacking everything that is occurring in that space and and seeing that as the curriculum that is what we are learning within and and that is a space that we're learning within there is a question that keeps reoccurring that i i haven't i have a response to but i would love to hear what your response to is. and this is where very many people who do work around decolonization ask the question of first of all is it possible to decolonize the education system and secondly is it decolonization if the system that you're working within is within the heart of the colony because if we're talking about empire and if we're talking about colonialism Brit- britain is the heart of the colony so is it possible to decolonize anything within the british context and also if within education specifically is that something that is achievable what
1: are your thoughts? I, th- I think it's very difficult because, again, we, the, the colonialised view and racism is like oxygen. It's like toxic air. We, it, we breathe it all of the time. And I think, I mean, I try and stay away from, from that sort of <laughs> question, mainly because it becomes defeatist. What we should do is recognise the air exists, first and foremost. I mean, there is a moral... Duty to to exist, but even that, from an academic lens, as an educator, I need to exist. I need to recognise the existence of, of racist structures mm. to educate properly. Yeah. What we need to understand, I think, is, I mean, going back to uh, the question you asked before, how do you bring people in? Racism actually holds us all back in one form or another. Even mm. white people who are endowed with the privileges of whiteness are held back by racism to a certain extent.
0: Expand on that a little
1: bit more. First and foremost is the economic argument that the ethnicity pay gap costs our country an absolute fortune
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, through the economy. Equally, I've I've seen and coached and mentored hundreds of, of people of colour who are being held back due to the protected characteristics they possess. The talent we lose. And continuously lose through the system because of racism. It can't be good for any part of any part of the system. Mm-hmm. Talking about white people, I think whiteness is, is, is interesting because do we really think that white people are free under a colonialized system? I don't think they are. No.
0: Yeah.
1: I think we're all in we're all in the same cage. Everybody loses. Because what happens is you're in, you're put into a cage, and the same system of this is what success looks like. Yes, you have mm-hmm. the advantages, but you're still put on that same path, and the same journey to to where you measure your metric of success against. So everybody loses. i say we people of colour mm-hmm. lose more, but I think everyone loses in in that same system. Yeah,
0: ab- absolutely, and that's that Friarian logic. You can't have. These, these binaries of the oppressed and the oppressor without there being damage to both. So, Absolutely. I, I, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And just going, I'm going back to the question about whether or not decolonization is possible, my immediate response to people is there has to be possibility for it. Yeah. Because as Ibrahim Kendi has told us beautifully in his book, um, you can't do anti-racism work without help. There has to be hopefulness in in this work that we can move forward with it, but it's a journey. It's a process that we have to go through. Are we ever going to reach the point where we have absolute decoloniality? I'm not sure, but are we trying to get to that absolute point immediately? No, we're trying to strive towards it. It's something that we're working towards. It's an aspiration. And I think if we're working towards it and we're going through that journey, then we're, we're heading in the right direction at least.
1: Yeah yeah absolutely i i agree with that heading in the right direction i think decolonization is often seen i mean i see decolonization as living in the mind and the psyche of of people if if we can sit and get people to accept knowledge is not in their in through their lens of whiteness i'm not talking about white people I'm talking about everyone that for me is decolonization because if we can start there then the rest falls into place, because then we, see we have a more of an appreciation for the, the authentic truth. Yeah. And, and I say truth again with, with speech marks and authentic in speech marks, actually. Mm. Um, and that should leak out into society through through obviously their cognitive processes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just returning as well to back to the point we've made at the very beginning around the term being co-opted, what are some of the ways in which you think the term decolonisation and decolonising the curriculum has been co-opted?
1: Absolutely. I think diversity. I think lots of people after last summer and yeah, the murder of George Floyd uh, mm-hmm. on the streets sparked a movement. And at the time I was inundated with emails, people asking me for, for books by authors of colour and books by, of, of characters of colour. That's not decolonisation. That's diversity and representation is important, but we still have the problem of the damage which lies within the power structures of the, the, the literature that they were they were asking for. And yeah. and this is obviously, you, we can apply this to every sector of education, but an example would be To Kill a Mockingbird in 2012 was all but removed from the English literature curriculum by Michael gold 's reforms.
0: Yeah.
1: And at the time... I had a conversations with anti-racist teachers at the time saying oh golf's removing all all people of color from the from the curriculum what uh, and to kill a mockingbird is an anti-racist book and i remember thinking is to kill a mockingbird an anti-racist book mm. really? really. Because when we break that down, let's look at the tropes that exist within the book. Yes, there's people of colour in, in the book, so it would fulfil the the quota system of, of having uh, brown and black bodies in the literature and media. But in the book, the first thing is, the book is narrated from the view of Scout, who is Atticus's young daughter, mm-hmm. a white girl. So all the fears and anxieties are around white people. So it centres yeah. on white people's feelings. Mm-hmm. Next, a black man is accused of an aggressive crime. Now, now that's not a trope, is it? Now that's not mm. uh, an angry, dangerous black man. Then we have a white woman cries, a black man dies, mm. which is again a, 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 an adage which is which we know has been completely and utterly prevalent through society. If anyone's sitting there thinking what's Pran talking about, Google Emmett Till, please. Mm. and and see the atrocities that have happened in our world and continue to happen in our world. Then we look at the book. The black man doesn't speak through the book. Yeah. Just doesn't have a voice through the book. Mm. The white man is trying to save said black man through the white saviour trope because we can't save ourselves. We need white people to come and rescue us, Um, which is prevalent in lots of uh, of media representations. Indiana Jones, the Temple of Doom is is an example. Django Unchained. Mm. I can go on and on and on Um, because we need a white saviour narrative. The white man actually fails in saving said black man. Black man is murdered, Mm. but it's okay because because the white man has won the respect of his community mm. now those narratives are vastly damaging vastly, yeah. vastly damaging and they're not damaging because teachers are sitting there um, waving kkk flags and mm. wearing hoods they're damaging because those narratives exist which say this is your role this is your place and yeah. they're damaging not just to people of color but to white pupils i mean yeah. if you if you head over to my tedx talk i talk about my journey started on my first day at university when i was asked by a white counterpart what have the indians done for to add to the sum of human knowledge and i didn't have an answer for him i didn't have an answer for mm. him at all and what i realized that day is yes i felt inferior i literally shrunk back in myself but through no fault of his own my white counterpart that day had gained a sense of superiority
0: yeah
1: through absolutely no fault of his own. Absolutely. And 18 years of both both being in the same curriculum system mm. and then the same education system. So, yeah.
0: And that's a really, really powerful way of just getting across that when we are talking about decolonizing the curriculum, we're talking about what knowledge is being legitimized within the space. It goes so much further than representation. If we're bringing in a diversity in terms of more black authors into the space. What narratives are we including in that? What are the knowledges that are being perpetuated through those inclusions? Looking at of mice and men, and the conversations that are happening nationally around whether or not teachers should use the N word, whether or how they should engage with that word, etc. That there's a bigger question here of why have you got a text where the only black person in that text is being spoken about in such a derogatory mm-hmm. way? when this is a text that is used within schools to, to highlight some of these key issues. There are so many other derogatory terms that are used within that book as well that aren't given mm. as much consideration for schools because they realise how problematic that word is. But yet mm. there's conversations around the word rather than conversations about whether or not that book should even be removed from the space. Absolutely. Othello, it, it, Othello goes in, is exactly the same, where yeah. it's almost assumed that these are These are canons of knowledge that need to be in the curriculum, and the question is, how do we engage with them, as opposed to, Mm. we have so much literature out there, so much literature out there, why are we not choosing literature that positively represents these experiences, that authentically represents these experiences, rather than constantly perpetuating a white narrative of a Black experience?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I would say I'm not a fan of censoring anything. And the reason for that is, is because as soon as you talk about censorship, people, people absolutely turn off. Equally, the realities of society from children in school, what ends up happening is they go into the world and are completely lost. I'm talking mm-hmm. about students of colour here. I mean, Crooks, let's be completely honest, Killer Mockingbird, Crooks in Of Mice and Men is, is a black character, but it says quite clearly in the writing that he's the only person in, in the story who owns books. How many times is he portrayed as being intelligent? He gets a barrage of, of, of racialized abuse. How many times do we is he taught as being resilient? Mm. And and th- again, those narratives are damaging. I've seen both books. I've seen To Kill a Mockingbird be taught from a a much much more authentic lens. Why? Why is, is, is Tom Robinson not yeah. allowed to speak at this point? What are his feelings? Why are black people of left of centre on stage? Why, why are white people in the centre? Why oh, do we have this representation here? And that's what the decolonial truth is. It mm. comes with the, crit, the critical lens of, of sitting back and saying, um, what, is, what? And once you see, obviously you cannot unsee. Yeah. And, and, and that is the absolute trick. I mean, my aim as an educator has always been to for my for my kids to have the, the ability to say, sir, we've spent a month looking at this, this homogeneous group of people. Mm-hmm. Do not, do, does no one else exist in the world? And if they are challenging me in that manner, then I've done my job right. I mean, Freya says quite equally, it is it is uh, the duty of an educator not to be neutral. And I think ultimately there's this idea that we live in a neutralized world Mm. that, that any anti-racism work is divisive. We live in a divided community already. That, that, that premise of we are in a, a society which is fair and I'm trying to divide it. Well, no, 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 no. That's because you don't see the divisions that already exist in pay, in mental health admissions, in, in police deaths, in the way we are prosecuted, in custo- custodial sentences, in bullying in workplaces, on disciplinary... I can go on for literally... Yeah. Ever, um, and and I think it's really, really important we move. So for me, decolonization, it starts with educators opening their minds to a world that they've been they've been trained to ignore.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I completely agree with you that there is no and Freire says this perfect. There is no such thing as an apolitical classroom. There isn't such mm. thing as that that neutral space. Mm. I think where I would position a little bit of a challenge is that we when we're talking about decolonizing the curriculum, absolutely it's about looking at things through a more critical lens, asking the questions that aren't always asked and thinking about how we can engage with the text that we have differently. But because the classroom is a political space, I think we should also be asking about the decisions we make as educators in how we select what is taught because it is, it is always a choice, whether that comes from the educator themselves or from the school or from the trust that they are working within. There is a choice in what we choose to engage with. And some texts are more harmful than they are opportunities to be critical. So I'm not not an advocate for censorship either. I don't think we should be Mm. censoring. But I do think that there are certain things that can't always be discussed effectively within the school space. And some things that don't really belong in those 50 minute lessons that you have with students. Because what you can sometimes do is... the hope of opening up that criticality and um, offering an alternative lens to a particular piece of text you may be opening up wounds or trauma for students that you can't contain in those 15 minutes and you can't support them to work through in those 15 minutes and so it isn't always the place of the classroom to -hmm. interrogate some of these issues and I think as educators we also need to feel empowered to make choices that take care of those who are in the classroom, as well as off, offering the, them the opportunity to ask those critical questions. I think care in the classroom and compassion in the classroom is a really important part of the anti-racism work that we have to do as well.
1: Absolutely. I always say in any of the schools that I work with, I talk about, do not bring up racism or anti-racism work explicitly, unless you have the structure, of support within the staff and the student body to, to support them. Because let's be honest, racism is trauma racialized trauma is real and if you're bringing those up you're opening a box you're opening a box and if you don't have the the tools to to treat people it's it's absolutely and completely and utterly problematic
0: absolutely absolutely so we're thinking about decolonizing we're thinking about anti-racism work how does this look differently for educators based on their positionalities so, we, and, I, and I've been having this conversation over the last few weeks with people around, what does it mean to be a, an anti-racist person of colour within the mm. education system? What does it mean to be a white anti-racist doing this work within the education system? And the, some of the responses are obvious responses, but I think it's worth interrogating a little bit more.
1: Mm. But before that, let me just talk to you too about the curriculum. And the the problem with our system is high stakes accountability as a former school leader i understand absolutely i mean i was curriculum and standards so i'm a results man you don't get the results that p8 figure dips my head teacher might be gone in september Mm -hmm. and we know what happens then see leadership goals and then whatever and, and onwards and onwards the problem here is there is this fallacy that we should mark, jump through mark scheme hoops to get kids best grades that's an absolute fallacy if you look at the work of Christine Council and um, she cites Hammond in a small study about history papers she looked at history papers which were strong a grades and history papers which are fragile a grades now. With the fragile A grades, the language difference in their papers was really interesting because they were more likely to use words like people instead of public. Now, public in history has a very different meaning to people. Neither of them would lose or lop off any marks from the mark scheme. But if we look at the, 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 the pupils who were using the word public, we can trace back a more diverse and broad curriculum as a result. Mm. They are stronger students because of the diverse and broad curriculum they are exposed to. The mm. journey of, of educators is not to produce children who create who get great results. That my my absolute aim is to produce great scientists, great writers, great mathematicians, great artists, great historians, great geographers, because we're all of those things every single day. Mm. And then if we do that well the results come as a secondary as yeah. a secondary consequence so I think I think it's a bit of a misnomer to to go down that the exam boards say this is this. I mean we are, I am working with exam boards currently mm. to to look at narratives within within GCSE specs, um, which has been which has been an absolute joy this year and hopefully a long term a long-term gain. But bringing it back towards uh, positionality, what does it look like to be uh, a person of colour and an anti-racist? I think ultimately it's, it's very similar to being a white, uh, white anti-racist and, and because we all have to recognise our positionality. Mm. The intersectionality of the way we are positioned in society gives us power and oppression, all of us. But if, now,
0: we think, if we think about this within the context of the... Neo-capital systems that we are working within that are positioned in in particular ways. Um, it is very difficult to be um, an anti-racist when your positionality is as a black woman, for example, when you are working very hard in a space that is constantly trying to delegitimize your authority in that in that space in your and your experience in that space to take a radical approach. And it is considered a radical approach, what you're suggesting around um, not educating students just to test the banking model that that Frary would talk about. Going against the grain and saying, this is about developing the whole of the child and supporting the whole of the child. To do that in a space where you don't have those structural supports and your positionality is one that is always at risk within that space. It, it's, I feel it's very difficult to do anti-racism work from that perspective more so than it would be for a white man who was an anti-racist within the education system that was able to be buffered to a certain degree by all of the privileges that he holds within that space.
1: I mean, yeah, no, absolutely. Sorry, I mis—I misunderstood the question. I was, cent- I was centering on the experience of, as in the centralized experience of looking at the world and, and saying what happens, but absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I mean, let's be honest, yeah, it's a radical view. I want to make children better at, at learning instead of being able to pass a test, or as well as being able to pass a test. Radical. Um, yeah, but you are right, it is a radical space. Absolutely. What people don't understand is anti racist work is fundamentally a dangerous act.
0: Uh, and yeah. for
1: women of colour, Absolutely. As a man of color, I've I've seen death threats. I've I've seen uh, people attack my parents. I've had numerous racist abuse via social media and emails. I've had all manner of, of nonsense. But all you do, for, for me personally, that space and and I've been here for a long time. That space, it doesn't bother me because the more I rattle cages, the more changes that is happening. Mm. But I think you're absolutely right. If you have a power, and let me just cite Zeus Leonardo's work on on white privilege and going beyond white privilege. He talks about about privilege being walking down the street and money being put into your pocket without you knowing about it. Mm. But he says that analogy stops and we need to go further. And further in the analogy is where does that money come from? That money actually comes from the pockets of people of colour. When we look at male privilege, men have privilege because women are, are, are oppressed. Mm. So whether we like it or not, we're part of that system of oppression. Now, I, because I'm a man, has, have an unearned unearned advantage of, of privilege. A male privilege, absolutely. And because I, for just for existing, I'm given something which is taken from women of color. The simple fact here is I am protected for me to stand up and say and be a, fem, a femme ally is very different to a woman standing up and be and, and, and talking feminist, a uh, womanist or all feminist uh, rhetoric. It's exactly the same when we talk about white allyship. Mm-hmm. White people have a buffer because they're not going to be attacked in the same way. Um, And ultimately, I think it's duty. I think think it's absolutely duty as a man and as a cisgendered man, as a a hetero man, it's my duty to protect those protected characteristics because I didn't earn this. I'm benefiting from the structures because of their oppression. So it's my duty to elevate their voices. It's my duty to to make the world a better place, to use this advantage. Um, yeah. Sorry, it was a bit of a rant.
0: No, no, no. I think that's a, that's, a, that's a perfect summary of what we've been discussing, is that this work is a duty to honor all of us, because we're all part of the system, we're all affected by the system. I And I always say that when we're doing this work, our work is not the same, but we are all working towards the same goal. So as, as somebody who is a black anti-racist or as somebody who's a white anti-racist, The responsibilities that we have and the tasks that are are asked of us are never going to be the same because we're entering into this from two very different spaces, but we are working towards the same goal. And and that goal is trying to create a more equitable space um, and to create more equitable interactions and to redistribute that power that is, at the moment, solely focusing on keeping particular people advantaged and justifying the exploitation of others.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, it's really worth thinking through what anti-racism is. You can't be an anti-racist and accept the power structures as they are. It just doesn't work like that. Let's be honest, all the diversity schemes, all of the leadership schemes to get people of colour into positions of power, are racist in themselves because all it does is it accepts the world as it is. It doesn't embrace the world for for the truth. What it says is, we'll put a sticky plaster on. We'll put a few people into positions of power, and once those people are in power, we'll we'll give the uh, the the idea that that we have an equal society and this false idea of the meritocracy if Mm. you are leading an organization which is solely around moving people through leadership that's not anti-racism that's more of the same what we need to do is look at the cause of the discrepancy 10 percent of the teaching workforce ascribes to the BAME label and it's problematic it can be a problematic label but I can come back to that later Mm. less than three percent of us hold Jobs our head teachers, and now we can sit and say, right, what we're going to do is we're going to put lots of money into leadership programs, which support teachers of colours through the management systems. Mm. Yeah, I agree. It may help one or two people. What does it do about the structures which are ingrained into our psyches, which are well worn paths which tell people that this person does not look like a head teacher? Now, let's be honest, these, these paths are ingrained into everything we absolutely do. Mm. And I'm not going to blame the media or the literature, but I'm blaming people here. If and when I in some of my sessions, I sit and ask, name me three characters, three black men who are characters from um, from books, films, anything, and then give me give me some trends between them. What normally comes out is bald, probably because I'm standing in front of them, mm. and politically challenged, <laughs> good looking, muscly, hyper-masculine, a fighter, um, and sometimes a comedian. They're the The trends that are constantly hammered into us. Now, if that's the case, and they're constantly hammered into me, they're the narratives that I'm I'm looking. Then I sit there. I'm sitting as a uh, on a governing body appointing the head teacher. And a black man walks in. What what is my initial bias? And we know bias again is not a bad term. Bias is academically a habit of the mind. It is actually Mm. a completely and utterly natural phenomenon. Bias has a role to play to the point of, if we see a black face, and this is from the work of Maplin and Maplas, if we see a black face, an ambiguous face, which is given a racial marker of say Afro style hair or uh, Latinx style hair, you perceive the features as being different. So mm. people will see the nose as being wider. We can see the fa- people will perceive the face as being less friendly. Mm. So we know bias absolutely exists. So we need to uh, unentrench, fill in those ruts and and tread a new path. I think that's the the, the real difference with the structures and the systems. They don't currently work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Freire told us you can't reform structures that were designed to be oppressive. You can't reform structures that were designed for white supremacy. The only thing that we can do is to transform. And so when we're we're talking about anti-racism work, we're not talking about what are the small initiatives that you can do to build people's resilience through a system that is currently existing. You're thinking, how can we Mm. reimagine space so that the system is different? This isn't the system that we have to work with and just almost like plaster over the cracks, but to say, okay, we have the opportunity to hear if we know that these systems are not fit for purpose to imagine an alternative. And that's what we're really encouraging people to do is if, if the curriculum that you're working within doesn't fit what you're trying to achieve in the classroom as an anti-racist, how do we reimagine a curriculum that does? Mm. And I think that's the thing is, how do we reimagine a curriculum that is built around equity? Because at the moment, the curriculum that we have isn't designed for that.
1: 100%. I mean, it's really interesting. I am mean, doing do lots of research for the book, and looking at the curriculum and this idea of intelligence, it comes from a test made in and then taken to the U.S. with under the premise of upholding white supremacy, Mm. upholding Christian values of marriage, etc., which was obviously jumped on by white supremacists. Even as recently as the last decade, there's been work done with immigrant cultures from Morocco into Europe and European natives or natives of that country uh, against beach marks. We need to be really careful when we, we look at this measurement of intelligence because... What they found was the immigrants to that culture used different epistemic structures to answer the IQ test. Mm. That means the test is measuring how well you are acculturized into that ethnocentric, Eurocentric culture. Mm-hmm. It's just measuring that. It's not measuring the intelligence in the slightest. Yeah. It's measuring how well your brain is working like the people that are there. Now, that's intelligence. And again, then if we if that's what the premise of all intelligence is looked at, how does that leak out into the world of the curriculum? It's Mm. all based on a flawed system, which was designed, like you said, to uphold white supremacy.
0: Absolutely. And I think that that hits the nail on the head, making sure that we're understanding what the origins of these of this curriculum is and what we're asking of students, what we are deeming to be knowledge and how we are creating those understandings of knowledge before we can do the work of then saying, so what do we do to make this different? What do we do to challenge some of these assumptions that exist? But if you don't know the foundations, it's hard to do that. And we we talk about this with every discipline, whether you're from early years all the way through to higher education is, the easiest way to start doing work around decolonizing the curriculum is to understand the history of your discipline. Because once you understand the history of your discipline, you know what the foundations are that have built the the way in which the discipline has been constructed for students and for you as educators who are delivering it. Pran, we could talk all day, and I've loved it so much. It's been wonderful. But just thank you so much for the wealth of knowledge and wisdom that you've shared with us today. Please let people know how they can reach you. Um, I know you're on social media. Let us know what your Twitter tag is.
1: Uh, I'm at Mr. Pran Patel, and the website's decolonizercurriculum.com. I could literally talk for hours on end, you know know that. Um, But the last thing I will Mm. say, is this narrative of bad apples in any sector. It's not that we have bad apples. It's not even that the structures, which are the trees, which are wrong. It's the ground it was built upon and Mm. the trees and the orchard are built in. It is toxic for everybody. It's now Mm. time we start digging up the ground and undoing the poisoning of that land.
0: Decolonising the curriculum is about so much more than names on a paper. Representation matters and it's a huge part of the work that we're trying to do to diversify the educational spaces that we work within. But decolonisation is about power. And when we're doing the work of decolonising the curriculum, we're thinking about the ways in which we can disrupt power that has been established and has been embedded within our systems and structures. It's about thinking about the ways in which the world has been viewed, the ways in which knowledge has been created and legitimized in spaces, and the ways in which we have normalized the absence of other knowledges and other experiences. To do the work of questioning the curriculum, and to do the work of dismantling these dynamics of power is not only around decolonization and thinking about the ways in which we have constructed this colonial lens, it is an act of anti-racism. You are disrupting those dynamics that actively work to advantage some and disadvantage others. Decolonizing the curriculum is an active process. It is about so much more than names on a paper. To do this work is to be an anti-racist. Please listen to the words that we've said in this podcast and take on board these reflections. You've been listening to Becoming an Anti-Racist, the podcast.